If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to look with me today at the book of James. We're moving into chapter 5, and we're now on our final descent. So the landing gear is out. We're only a few weeks left in the book. Uh, before we read this morning, I wanted to remind you of a few things about this book, and I'll ask you the question, and hopefully you can respond today. So what is the book of James describing? Yes, a cruciform life. If that's a new word for you, here's what it means. James is, is describing a life that is being shaped by the cross. So that James is not a to-do list. James is saying this is what God does in people as he shapes their lives in accordance with the cross and from the cross. All right? This book is also about motivation. How does God motivate his people? How does he motivate you? What? By grace. And this is new. It's easy for us to be motivated by deficit. I can't bench press 400 pounds, so therefore I need to work harder to get there. Uh, I have to produce more at work, therefore there's a deficiency, so I've got to work my way up and produce more and more. So I'm motivated constantly by deficit deficit, what I don't have or what I am not. Does that sound familiar to you? Well, I want you to know because of Jesus and through the gospel, you don't have to live anymore being motivated by deficiency everywhere in your life. You can be motivated by grace because God wants us to be motivated from the fullness of Christ. It's too easy to motivate us by deficit. We're deficient everywhere, all the time, for every reason. That's too easy. That's just guilting people and shaming people into doing things. God wants us to be motivated by and from the fullness of Christ. So he motivates us by grace. All right, then we talked about vision. What's the vision of our church again? Love God, love people. Love the city, love place, right? So how does James fit with that vision? Well, here goes. God wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. So no matter what you're doing this week, whether you're a stay-at-home mom and dad, whether you're a student, whether you are starting a brand new business, or whether you're just reporting to your job that you've had for years and years and years, no matter what it is, God wants you to be ordinary, doing ordinary things, thinking about the gospel all the time and everything you do so that your life isn't compartmentalized. So you got your spiritual life on Sunday for an hour, and then you have to figure out work and how to meet uh, all the demands of your job. No, God wants you to bring Jesus into your everyday life. So that you can figure out and struggle to figure out how to live and work by faith. So that you can't separate your faith and your work. They're connected because we are whole beings. So that everything that we do is motivated by and reflective of and formed by the cross. So that we're actually learning how to live out our faith in our everyday life. How does that sound? Sounds kind of holistic, doesn't it? It sounds like God cares about everything we're doing, that everything that you're doing this week has value. 
I am not a better person because I'm a minister than you. My calling is just as important as yours. Yours is just as important as mine. God wants his people to be ordinary, doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. Okay, here's the last one. Remember the gospel in James, chapter 4, verse 6. God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Remember that? So when you think about life, remember, if we're full of pride, full of thinking that we're something, proving something here or there, God resists that. God didn't come to find good people and save good people. God gives grace to the humble. He comes from people that know themselves as really messed up and see that there's nothing that they can do to earn anything with God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. All right, one other thing I'll mention before I read, and this is unusual, okay? As I was studying this passage this week, I was really, really taken aback by how saturated these verses are with the entirety of the Scripture. So I'm going to give you a small sample throughout the sermon today by giving you cross-references. I don't do that a lot because I like to assume that we don't know the Bible. So I don't want to overwhelm you with just passages every week, even though I may refer to phrases in other parts of Scripture all the time. And if you know your Scriptures better, and if you spend a lot of time with them, you'll hear that through the sermon. But today, I'm going to mention a lot of cross-references. Not all the ones that could be mentioned, but just to help you see how marinated this section of James is with the entirety of the Bible, okay? You got that? So if I'm saying a lot of references and you get really confused, just know this isn't normal, all right? Furthermore, I'm going to read from the ESV, which I normally do, and then I also had the New Living Translation put up there after I read the ESV so that you can read it because there are some variants and things in James 5 and I don't want to go through all that stuff. But I want to give you a more uh, practical um, paraphrase of this passage. Make sense? That probably doesn't, I'm probably wasting your time there. But just want to tell you what to expect. So listen to this, James 5, 1 through 6, and then you'll have time to read the New Living Translation. I won't read that to you. Here's the word of God. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Oh yeah, we're off to a great start, aren't we? Yeah. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow, that sounds even better, doesn't it? Not really. Um, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of armies. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, if you would, put up the New Living Translation. Just work through it. Then I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand your word this morning in the few moments that we have. 
Um, Lord, would you remind us that we haven't come here today because we need to learn how to be nice. We haven't come here because we need to be a better version of ourselves. We're here in your presence because we need to know how much we need Jesus. And we need to be reminded that you, Jesus, have done everything and that you're still working in us. Holy Spirit, help us to hear what you want us to hear in this passage. Change us by truth. We pray this for your glory, Father. We pray this for your glory, Son. We pray this for your glory, Holy Spirit. Amen. Here's the point of the sermon today. Here's the takeaway. This is the the billboard saying this is what we're going to talk about. Whatever you have is meant to be shared. That's the point. That's the takeaway of this passage. Whatever you have is meant to be shared. So here are two stops on our way today through these verses. The first one is diagnostics, and the second is gospel. Got it? So that's where we're going. So we're going to try to understand this passage, and we're trying to understand that it's teaching us that whatever we have is meant to be shared. And in order to understand that, we're going to dive into some diagnostics in these verses and get to the gospel. You got me? That's where we're going today. So let's jump in. Remember that this passage, and thinking about diagnostics, this passage is connected to the last verses of chapter 4. Remember last week we talked about the fact that we all struggle with forgetting God. We have a tendency to forget God regularly in our lives. And we also looked at last week, we also looked together last week at the reality that when we forget God, when we put him, when we move him from the center, we put someone else in the center of our lives. And who would that be? Self. Maybe you feel that more and more. We have a tendency to forget God and we have a tendency to exalt self. So how do we know if we have a tendency to do that? How do we know that we struggle when putting God in the center? And how do we know that we have a tendency to focus on self? Well, these verses give us the diagnostic. Meaning, our relationship to money is an indication of what's happening in our hearts. And remember, what's the tendency? To push God out of center and forget about him and put self in the center. You get it? So let's think about these diagnostics. Look at verse 2, 3, and 5. Here's where we find what God tells us about these diagnostics. And, and let's run these diagnostics on our own lives. Let's understand what they're saying first. So when you look at back at verse 2 and 3 and 5, you see that God gives us an image. It's the image of rotting and the image of corrosion. Did you pick up on that? So there's these images of rotting and corrosion. You know what? I got ahead of myself too quick. Here's the first diagnostic. Are you a hoarder? Are you a hoarder? Am I a hoarder? The quick answer is yes. But let's work through it. Here's the image. Rotting and corroding. Now, when you look, it says that your gold, uh, your silver, uh, your clothes are all rotting and corroding. You see that? Now, James knows that gold and silver, don't, those metals don't rot. He's giving us an image of what's happening inside of us. 
We work really, really hard to acquire wealth and things, fine clothes, all kinds of stuff. And what happens is that ultimately, because we have a tendency to hoard, they will rot and they will corrode, even to the point where it feels like our flesh is on fire. Oh, that's a pretty strong image to think about, isn't it? Rotting and corroding. And he even adds to that image. Look at verse 5. That we live a life of self-indulgence and luxury. Do you notice that? And, and, and what ends up happening is this, another image. We end up fattening ourselves for the slaughter. As if to say, from our perspective, we are living a life of ease we are living a life of extravagance. What James is actually communicating there is that it's not just that we have more than we need. What he's actually saying is that our hearts are committed to satisfying every desire that we have so that there is no sense in our existence of saying no to self. So he's not just talking about people that have lots of resources. He's saying that we use those resources to satisfy every desire we have. We never even think about any type of self-denial. We have a tendency to not think about ever saying no to ourselves. We just live our lives wanting to satisfy every little desire that we have. Jesus gives us an image of this in Luke chapter 16, when he tells this story about a rich man who had everything that he wanted, and I think the text says in verse 19, he feasted sumptuously every day. And from God's perspective, he's saying all that you're doing is functioning like an animal that gourds on themselves and satisfies everything they have, not realizing that the butcher is keeping his eye on them. Because the day is coming in which we will give an account. And James is saying, are you a hoarder? Do you have a tendency to just live to satisfy self in everything? Is, is the luxurious life the one that you're trying to achieve? Are you trying to get to the point where you have so many resources that you don't have to worry about any single thing? Granddaddy used to say, Dave, money won't solve all your problems, but it'll solve your money problems. How many of us think if I could just have a more lavish lifestyle, I would be happier, I would be more satisfied, I would be content? God is saying, hmm, not so much. As a matter of fact, living in luxury, here's another parallel in the Scriptures. Do you remember this community way back in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember that? Here's what God says about Sodom and Gomorrah in Exodus, excuse me, Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. You get that? 
James is saying, if you want to understand, if you struggle to forget, if you struggle because you forget about God and in place of God, you put yourself in the center, well, think about, try this diagnostic. Look at your finances. Even more specifically, think about whether or not you hoard what you have. Here's an example I'll give you. I've seen this over and over during the time I've been in the ministry. There are people who have grown up in extreme situations in which performance was everything. Meaning, if they look back and reflect on their lives, they would realize that they were criticized by their parents if they didn't perform in a certain way, or they were encouraged by their parents if they performed in a certain way. So this whole sense of love being conditional and this whole idea of performance was just pushed down deep inside so that they grew up wanting to perform all the time and wanting to produce whether that was on the athletic field, whether it was in the classroom, no matter what it was, there was a strong sense of performance and everything that was good or bad revolved around that performance. So as people continued to grow, they achieved in high school and achieved in college and have achieved in the workplace so that titles have gotten more weighty and responsibilities have grown so that someone's life has been revolving around performance as long as they can remember. And it doesn't mean that people who, are, who have been trained, conditioned, who have been encouraged to perform, 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 is all bad. The point is that they had struggles too. They were just always strong enough to overcome them. They didn't, it's not that they didn't have trials, is that the trials weren't actually harsh enough to break them open. Because every time a trial came, they rose to the occasion and just kept performing and kept going and kept going. And what creeps in in that mindset, what creeps in in that performance-based acceptance, what creeps in in that performance-driven life is this. I did this. Look at what I can do. Every challenge that I've faced, I've overcome. Everything that I have, I've earned. I have been able to perform at the highest level all the time throughout my life. And here's the kicker. It's not just that those vo that voice creeps in and says, you know, I've really done all this. The kicker is that those that are closest to you see it. And they realize, they realize that everything in your life has been just about knowing a few tricks, knowing a, th a few methods, and you've just been working that no matter what happens. And the people that are closest to you recognize that that is the way that you are. Because everything in your life has been about performance. Everything has been about a particular method. Everything has been about a particular technique. And those around you see it. They recognize that you're a control freak. They recognize that you're incredibly shallow and have a really hard time admitting that everything is, anything's gone wrong because 
You've always been able to overcome it. Matter of fact, I heard a specific story of this one time where the man finally came to his senses when he realized that his family had turned on him because his family could see that that's the way he was, controlling, performance-driven, and it actually made him realize that he needed God because he had lived his entire life not thinking that he needed God that much. I mean, God's a, God can be a help here and there, right? But, you know, I'm really getting this done on my own. Beloved, that is what James is talking about regarding rotting and corrosion. That from the inside, all of the performance and the way that we live life and all that we do, we have a tendency to think that we've done it. And people around us can see right through it. Meanwhile, we just keep going. And all that's happening is that we're rotting from the inside. That everything we touch will end up just corroding. That all that we have really sets our flesh on fire. It's like venom. It's like poison. Well, here's the second diagnostic question. Not just am I a hoarder, but here's the second one. Am I harsh? Am I harsh in the way that I deal with people? Look at verse 4 and verse 6. James is pressing into us to think about how we relate to other people with our money. Look at what James says in verse 4. There are people that you hire that you actually never end up paying. And they cry out against you. And God hears it. Do you see that in verse 4? Beloved, do you struggle? Those of you that manage people, those of you that are responsible to compensate other people, do you struggle to pay them? Like, is it hard for you to be generous toward them? Is it easy to give them more responsibility and less pay? And I realize it is hard to work out your faith in your job. And I'm pushing on that and saying, I know. But do you end up cheating people? Is that easy to do? Do you know where this idea comes from? You might remember it. Egypt. It specifically says that God hears the cries of his people because they are being oppressed. They're being held down. And God is saying, I always hear it, and my army hears it. And what does God do? He moves, and he acts, he saves, he makes free. Is it easy for us to be harsh toward other people and not pay them appropriately. Remember, in the ancient world, they didn't have credit like we do. That's why he ends up saying in verse 6, look, it even gets to the point that you condemn people and murder them, which may sound incredible for James to say. That may seem like it doesn't fit at all, but he's working out the effect of being harsh on people as if to say, 
If you live in a culture where there's no possibility of credit and you're dependent on getting paid your wage every day so that you get paid at the end of the day so you can go and buy food and eat, and if you withhold pay from someone that has nothing other than the expectation of that paycheck after their work each day and you withhold that from them, they can't buy food. And what ends up happening is that obviously they starve and they could even die. Maybe you've been on the other end of this. Maybe even at your work right now, someone is withholding from you what is rightfully yours. I've been there. One of my early jobs, my employer said that they were going to give me a $7,000 raise. That was more than 20% of what I was making. Six months later, someone from the HR department came to me and said, so Dave, how are you and Jenny doing? We were in the exact same position. Because even though a decision was made, never changed for six months. I know what it's like to be on the other end where things are withheld that shouldn't be. God hears your cry. So whether you are responsible to pay people appropriately in the way that you have committed or whether you're on the other end and you should be compensated and you're not, God sees it all. And my hunch is you've probably been on both sides of that at some point. Is it hard for you to tip when you go to a restaurant? Is it hard to be generous to people? Are you harsh with people? James says that can even ultimately lead to murder. Look again at verse 6. You condemn and you murder the righteous one who doesn't, what does it say specifically, who uh, doesn't resist you. As if to say, you are in a position where these Workers are working for you. They're not resisting you. They're serving you. And yet you are being harsh toward them. Beloved, this is the exact spot where we can't but collide with the gospel. Do you see? Look at verse 6 again. Literally, it says, literally, it reads, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. That's what it literally says. Even, even if James is not talking directly about Jesus, don't forget that you can't read those words without thinking of Jesus, can you? that you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who did not resist you? How can you read those words and not think of Jesus? Even if James was not directly thinking about Jesus, remember this principle that Jesus says? Hey, whatever you've done to the least of these, you have done to me. In other words, Jesus identifies with those who are at the low end. 
Jesus identifies with those who are the outcasts. Jesus identifies with those who are treated poorly. So that by not giving water, by not clothing, remember Jesus says, oh yeah, whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. Because people say, well, what do you mean Jesus said we've harmed you and done this? What do you mean? Jesus says, well, if you haven't given people water and clothes and what they need, you've done it to me. James unmistakably is getting us to collide with Jesus and the gospel. Let's press this even further. Do you remember the story about Jesus going to the cross? You can, you can read about it in uh, Mark 12, and excuse me, Mark 14, in John 12, and in Matthew 26. Here's the story. And if you read those three chapters and those three books, you'll find this story. Jesus was at Mary's house, and he was there fellowshipping with his friends. And the disciples were there, and Mary came in, and guess what she did? She had this gigantic jar, we'll say, and she broke it open. And she anointed Jesus' feet with it. And it is thought that that jar with that costly ointment was a year's wages. There are other scholars who would say that it was actually her entire life savings. And she brings it to Jesus and washes his feet with it. And do you know what the disciples say? Jesus, why would you let her do that? We could do a lot of good things with that. Do you get what Mary was doing? She was saying, I see you, Jesus. I know what you've come to do. And what you are willing to do for me is worth more than everything that I have. Jesus, what can I give you? I give you everything. Here is my financial nest egg, if you will. It's all yours. Take it. Because you mean more to me than whatever I have acquired through inheritance or work or both. You are worth more to me than that. And the disciple that questioned was named Judas. And it says that he immediately went to the powers that be and sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Remember that? Here's the woman who says, Jesus, you are worth more to me than all of my financial, all of my financial well-being. And Judas says, hmm, how can I make money off of Jesus? James is pushing us right into the heart of the gospel so that we might understand and remember what Jesus has done for us. And here's the other part of the gospel in this text. It might not stand out to you initially, but look at this little phrase at the end of verse 3. You are storing up treasure in the last days. Now, that phrase doesn't mean to us, unfortunately, what it meant to those in the first century. Remember, the phrase last days is not referring to some time in the future that we haven't arrived at yet. Remember, the last days in the scripture is not us trying to figure out through current events where we are in the last days. Remember, that's not the Bible either. Remember, 
the last days in the scriptures started with the coming of Jesus. God has spoken in various ways and at various times, but has in these last days spoken to us through his son. Remember that? One of the first sermons preached in the early church was by Peter in which he referenced the prophet Joel and said the last days are upon us today in the first century. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth would say these things that were happened in the Old Testament in 1 Corinthians 10 were written for our instruction on us whom the end of the ages has come. Beloved, the last days for God's people in the first century meant that they knew that we were living in time of fulfillment. They understood that the United States of America is not the centerpiece of interpreting current events. The Bible is not USA-centric. The Bible is not Jewish-centric. The Bible is Christocentric. So that people, when they look at time, recognize that when Jesus has come, we are living in the time of fulfillment. And James is saying, why in the world are you hoarding your wealth? Why in the world are you being harsh with people? Don't you understand your Savior has blown a hole in the back of death? And that life and life abundant is here Those in the first century were thinking about the last days. They were living in it all the time. They were wrestling with the implications of the resurrection for their entire being and the state of the world. Their hope was not to escape this world. Their hope was to see all things made new. Their hope was to live their lives every day with Jesus, working out their faith, giving to his kingdom, serving his kingdom, because they believe the crazy thing that Jesus is God in the flesh and he came to earth. He died for us and he rose from the grave and he literally, physically walked on this earth and he conquered death. They actually believe that. It's crazy. It is crazy. I believe that too, and people think I'm crazy. James is saying, why? Why would you hoard? Why would you be harsh with people? You're in the last days. Christ is going to come back, and everything's going to be made new. In other words, when you think about this, let's say this. When he says you're living in the last days and you run that through those diagnostic questions of are you a hoarder and are you harsh with people? When you think about the last days through the lens of those diagnostics, you realize what Jesus has done? It means that when I stand before you, my identity and worth is not based on what you think of me. My worth, my value, my identity is not in the clothes that I wear. My worth and my identity is not based on how much I get paid and whether I make more than you or how that makes me better than someone that has less or worse than someone who has more. 
it means that I don't have to try to manage my image all the time because Jesus has died for me and he rose from the dead for me. He's freed me from thinking that I have to hoard my money and I have to show people that I have a really nice car and that I have to wear really nice clothes because people look at you a certain way when you wear really nice clothes or drive a certain car or you can do certain things with money and so I have to guard that all the time. We're free from that. You see, the gospel saves us from something The work of Jesus saves us from thinking that our identity and worth is manufactured by what we can spend our money on. The work of Jesus frees us. It liberates us from thinking that it ultimately matters what you think of me or what kind of car I drive or what I wear or where I went to school or what my job is or what my titles are or how much responsibility I have. It frees us from that. And beloved, like verse 6 is saying, and what this phrase, the last days, is saying, is that because of Jesus, the gospel not only saves us from something, it saves us to something. You see, this is not a passage in which God is saying that he dislikes you saving money, okay? God commands throughout the scripture that we save money. It's true. God is not against planning. We covered that last week. God is not against financial planning. It's good. God is not against rich people. He's not against wealthy people. He's not. He's not. This passage is about the misuse of money. It's about the misuse of finances. This is not a passage in which I get to tell you how if you just give more, God will bless you more. That's not it. This is not a passage about how I can finally get the plane that I've been wanting. That was supposed to be a joke. (laughs) This is not about you giving so that I can get on a plane, okay, or have a plane. That's not it. This is an invitation to serve in his kingdom with your resources. This is the indication of God telling us, look, All that you have comes from me. You didn't get where you are in life because of your hard work. Where you are in life is because whatever skills you have, whatever advancements you've made, whatever breaks that you've gotten have come down. They started in heaven and they came down to you and to me. You didn't conjure them up on your own. God gave them to you so that he would invite you into serving and investing in the gospel and in the kingdom. And that means that if you've been giving, beloved, it is an evidence that Jesus is your identity. If you're giving to his kingdom, it's evidence that Jesus isn't working your life because you're not taking everything that you earn and just spending it on yourself. Remember, God says, bring my resources into my storehouse. That's his church. God says in 1 Corinthians 16, on the first day of the week, set something aside to be given to the kingdom. All throughout the scripture, God commands his people to give 
to help the poor, to help the needy, to help those who need it, to plant churches, to upkeep his facility, to provide for your leadership, to encourage one another. God, in his amazing wisdom, invites us into participating with him in the spreading of the gospel. And again, if you're giving, it's evidence that God is at work in your life. And if you're not, then beloved, just admit it. Look at your finances. Look at your household income. Look at what you give. And if you're not giving anything to his church, God would say, can you admit that? Are you willing, verse 1, to wail? Meaning, repent? Are you willing to admit that you're not doing what you should with your resources that God has given you? Are you willing to admit that and go a different direction? And please hear me. All of us have ups and downs in life, financially speaking. There may be times where you can give more than others. It's absolutely true. You may need help working on a budget. You may need help trying to figure out where and how you can give to God's church. Seek it. Ask for it. I've grown up in that too. When, when I was growing up, my, my dad was pastoring a church that had 600 people. That's a pretty good-sized church. And my parents were not making enough money to give, meaning we couldn't pay the light bill if we tithe to the church. And I remember my dad telling me that he went to the leadership and said, we can't tithe to the church. And the leadership said, that's okay. You're giving your whole life to this. Don't worry about it. My parents wanted to give to the church. They literally couldn't. And that changed over the years. But I know what it's like to live in that environment where you literally are paycheck to paycheck trying to figure out how you're going to make everything meet. So don't hear this and interpret it as me being more harsh. I'm not trying to be. But God is inviting us into kingdom work with him. Look at your finances and be honest. Because at the end of the day, we give because Jesus has given us everything. We're not giving because we want God to extra bless us. You're not giving so that I can get that plane I wanted or helicopter. We're giving because we've been given everything. And God says, come with me in the last days. As we see the fulfillment and the spread of the church and the gospel go everywhere. We work with him in that. And that's what brings us to the table.